it was a Friday afternoon because I was like, I need them to get the money before the weekend. I walked into Wells Fargo with my like printed out wiring instructions, wired them $10,000 and I never heard from them again. Hey, this is Heath Padgett and welcome to the RV Entrepreneur Podcast, episode 195. The RV Entrepreneur is a podcast that I started back in February of 2016. I can actually remember we had rented a small little office space and it was me, Alyssa, and our editor for our, our documentary. We had our Winnebago parked at a campground that was nearby and I would go into the next room because there was nobody in there and I was sitting on the floor with my microphone recording episodes and intros for this podcast. Most of them took place in the RV, but occasionally we'd go into this office space that we had rented for a couple months. And over the next couple years, this podcast turned into more than I could have ever imagined. In a month and a half, Alyssa and I will host our fourth annual RV Entrepreneur Summit, where we will have 350 other people like us who are running a business from their RV as they travel across the country. We are now sitting in our RV in Destin, Florida, and we have a baby. And it's just been a, <laughs> a crazy adventure over the past six years. And as this podcast has evolved, so have we, or maybe it's more like vice versa as we have evolved. So is this podcast. When we first started the show, Alyssa and I were in the weeds of trying to figure out how we extend this crazy road trip that was supposed to only be a year and turn it into our full-time life, be full-time RVers and travel around the country and run a business and see amazing places and kind of create this unique life that we didn't know really existed. And by starting the podcast, I was able to bring on other people who were going after that same goal, or maybe they already had it. And it was a way for really for us to learn, but also my bigger hope was maybe that it could inspire other people to see this as a viable option in their careers or their business as well. And I guess all I wanted to say at the beginning of today's episode, as I'm nearing 200 and maybe being a bit nostalgic, is that I'm really grateful for having the opportunity to record this podcast interview so many amazing people who many have become some of my really good friends, which is a side note. If you ever want to start a podcast, it is a great way to make friends. And as long as you guys are getting value from this podcast, I'm going to keep making episodes. Today's episode is with Jess Ekstrom. Jess lives, works, and travels in an Airstream with her husband and dog while running Headbands of Hope, a company that sells headbands. But for everyone sold, they will donate one to a kid who has been impacted by cancer or some other illness. Since launching in 2012, they've donated over half a million headbands to hospitals all over the world and been featured on outlets like The Today Show, Good Morning America, and supported by celebrities like Kelsey Ballerini, Leah Michelle, and many others. There were several things I loved about this interview with Jess as I went back and re-listened to it. One, she's running a really amazing company out of her Airstream, and that's kind of the whole point of this podcast. Plus, it's making a positive impact on the world. Two, her story is pretty incredible. When starting Headbands of Hope in college, Jess initially lost her entire investment into the company, which I'm sure in the moment, and also sure because she told me, was pretty demoralizing. She thought it was all over, but it wasn't. She continued. 
which is why we had this conversation and which is why her company has impacted hundreds of thousands of people. And lastly, aside from her story, we cover just a lot of really great ideas and philosophies and tactics for any entrepreneur who is in the day-to-day weeds of growing their business, such as why business plans can be highly overrated and why most of the time it's more just like throwing darts in the dark at a dartboard that's probably like three inches wide. We talk about how Jess has been able to create a ton of disproportionate wins by consistently putting herself out there and how to get over the fear of someone rejecting you, which is a common fear that we always go through. And even if you think that you've conquered it, there's probably a variation and you can always do better. And lastly, we talk about the importance of focusing on what you're doing now and really appreciating it and why that's so important versus constantly looking ahead for the next thing which is really good advice, not just for business and in life, but also as travelers, because we're always focusing on like, where do we want to go next? And we're so excited to get there instead of appreciating maybe the random small town that we're driving through today, or this maybe off the beaten track place that we're currently in right now. So that was a few things that made me really excited to be able to share this interview with you guys. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Me too. Do you go by Jess or Jessica? Like, which one do you prefer? Jess. And that was like funny. It was kind of a, um, I was, had a college internship at the um, Today Show and I showed up on my first day and they asked me, they were like, do you go by um, Jess or Jessica? And I always just say like, oh, whatever rolls off the tongue. And they were like, no, you have to decide right now <laughs> what you want to do. And I was like, uh, Jess. And that, that was it. But at the time I was like, why do I have to decide? And now I'm like, you know, I'm glad that I like stuck with one and let's, let's just go for it. Let's use it. I love it. So, so now that that was like that trans, that transition, not just from the today show internship, but to like everything now it's Jess. Yeah. Yeah. It's like short, sweet to the point. Like that was actually one thing that is a total non sequitur, but our daughter we wanted her to be able to have a nickname because Alyssa, my wife, is just there's no like an abbreviation for Alyssa right. or Heath. It's like he and that that just doesn't make sense. So having a name that <laughs> has a cool abbreviation, I think, is actually meaningful and also makes me think of that scene in or multiple scenes in The Office. I don't know if you watch The Office, but basically where they call like plop. Yeah. So like they stick with these nicknames throughout the show. That's like our go to guilty pleasure show is, is oh, The Office. Oh, same. Now. I'm literally going to cry when Netflix takes it off. I'm like, I have to get 2020 is the year of the office and I have to get in as much as I can before it's it's off you know what I feel like I should be ashamed to say this but we have every episode on dvd and because our our rv has a dvd player um (laughs) we we have backups so that's amazing so we have the one dvd that we have is the movie bridesmaids nice and then we have a cd player and the one cd I own is chris stapleton's traveler it was so funny I was in Nashville recording my audiobook and it was like on at like kind of a music recording studio and guess who walked in Reba McIntyre Chris Stapleton <laughs> wow I was like what and so I ran up to him and I told him I was like I live in an airstream I have a cd player I own one cd and it's yours and I mean I did not play it cool but um, <laughs> he was he was really nice about it <laughs> I think we're all allowed a good fangirling, fanboying moment at a certain oh, point. Yeah. So Chris Stapleton's a great one. He's a, he's a legend already. Yeah, yeah, he was great. And sometimes, you know, they say, like, don't meet your heroes because, you know, you don't want to ruin your 
your like perfect perception of them. But he really lived up to like what I had envisioned in my head, even just like the voice, everything. It was it was great. <laughs> I love it. He seems like he would just have this very like relaxed personality all the time. Super relaxed. Yeah. Your story has so many different touch points and some people are really, really fun to like dig into their history before jumping on because there's like so many threads that you can pull on during a conversation like this. And I want to talk about Headbands of Hope, your company. I want to talk about your book and some other things that you do in the speaking world. But I think first it would be fun to start off today's episode by talking about why after nine years of running Headbands of Hope, what made you guys decide to hit the road in Airstream? started Headbands of Hope out of my dorm room in college after an internship with Make-A-Wish and seeing a lot of kids that were losing their hair to chemotherapy and they loved to wear headbands. And so I was on the road a lot anyway, doing hospital donations around the country and then doing speaking engagements. And my parents are also in an RV as well. They are entrepreneurs, they sold their company, and then they sold everything they owned and have been in the road for five years now. And they just got volunteer park ranger jobs. So they're living their best life. But I would go and visit them. And I thought it was just so cool that they could see all these different places and travel, but still have the familiarity of like the same bed to sleep in at night. Because with me when I was traveling, um, I loved being different places and seeing things and meeting people, but I just didn't like the hotels and the rental cars and also just like being away from my husband and my dog. And so I was like, you know, maybe there's a way that we could take this on the road. And so my husband and I, one night we were at this random restaurant that we had a gift card to, and we just started talking and we were like, wouldn't it be cool if we could just hit the road. I feel like that's how this starts for everyone who, who does this. It's not like a, we're going to hit the road. It starts in this dream phase. It starts as like a semi joke. Like one person throws it out there. It's like, Hey, wouldn't that be kind of crazy? And the other person's like, yeah, it would be, but let's talk about it. And then you kind of start dabbling down this path of, I wonder what it would look like if, and then you realize that sometimes like these dreams that feel so wild really are actually attainable. And so <laughs> we call it the, like, the coconut shrimp that like changed our life because we were like eating this coconut shrimp and we we're like, I wonder if we could do this. And then the next day we both woke up and we were like, do you still like feel the same way? And we we're both like, yeah. And so I think, you know, we weren't like, you know, high five, jump in the air. We're hitting the road. It was like, let's just start doing the small things as if we were going to do this. Let's figure out what it would cost. Let's figure out if we could lease our place. Let's figure out, you know, all these little things that usually are the reason why we don't do something. Let's just see what would happen if, if we could manage those. And little by little, it started to go from a dream to like, okay, this is, this is happening. Uh, and so I think like maybe it took us about 10 months to, from like that coconut shrimp to (laughs) hitting the road. (laughs) And do you have like an in-person team at Headbands of Hope? Like where were you guys based out of? Or, or are you guys going to disperse? Like how does that work? So I do have a team and that they are like one of the reasons why I've been able to to do this. Our headquarters are in Charlotte, North Carolina, and that's where our warehouse is and everything. And originally I was kind of like, I don't know what the word is, but I was self-conscious about the trip because people were like, oh, you're taking a year off. And I was like, I don't feel like I am, you know, but at the same time, I had no idea 
what this trip would do to my career. You know, I, I didn't know if it would stall it, you know, not being able to just be on email all the time and be on it, like, like doing all this stuff. And so, um, I felt kind of weird about like what the unknown of what this meant for me as an entrepreneur. And then was really pleasantly surprised that it had like quite the opposite effect. You mean productivity hasn't been totally shot or? Well, a few different things happened from a how I work standpoint. Like I will be the first to tell you that when I was at home, there was no off the clock. It was, I was in build mode constantly. And now then when we hit the road, you know, there'd be times where it's like, okay, we're in this park and we're only here for five days can I take the time, you know, to take a day and go do this or shut off at three o'clock so I can go on a hike. And it really taught me this work-life balance that I've been trying so hard to, to like find that, that medium. And then it also really allowed me to lean on my team. And I realized there were so many things that I was taking on myself that I wasn't letting them do what they do best and just thinking, oh, it takes me 15 minutes. I'll do it. And then when I'm not in that position anymore, to be able to do that, I realize how capable they are. And so there was this like this quality of life standpoint with my work that changed. But then from an exposure standpoint, being in the airstream and traveling and being on the road also brought a lot of attention to the Headbands of Hope brand and then who I was as like an author or speaker and people became really fascinated by it. And so from a media standpoint, it, there was just so many things that actually ended up enriching the work and the experience rather than feeling like I was hitting a pause button. When you thought about what the year would look like, did you guys have things planned for this year that were completely not work related, but just kind of you wanted to be in a certain place and do a certain thing, if that makes sense? Oh, totally. And almost, I think almost to a fault, we were hyper planned. We were like, okay, 1147 on Tuesday, we're going to hike this mountain. And I'm a type A planner. I want to make sure we're, we're getting the most out of everything to the point where it's if I'm spending so much time in the plans, you know, are you really taking it all in? And that's something that the trip has taught me as well. But it was so funny, like we left in March, and I would say up until September, we had every day like a reservation somewhere, something planned, because especially over the summer months, as I'm sure you guys know, it's super competitive to get to a lot of the national parks and places that you want to see. And it's so busy. And we really hit a lot of the things we wanted to. I mean, we went to Glacier, Banff, Rocky Mountain. And then it was in September. And it was the first time that we had like a gap that we were like, we don't have anything planned here. We don't have any reservations. When we were in like the Pacific Northwest, let's just kind of see what happens. And we were like, if we have to sleep at a Cracker Barrel, you know, we'll sleep at a Cracker Barrel. But I was in Atlanta for um, for a speaking engagement and I had lunch with this work acquaintance that I knew but didn't really know well. And she said that she was flying to Seattle the next day for a concert. And I said, oh, that's so funny. I fly to Seattle too because that's where our... Airstream is parked. And she was like, I know this is crazy, but I have an extra RV pass to Dave Matthews at the Gorge this weekend if you want to go. And I was like, um, heck yeah, <laughs> I, I want to go. And it was so 
crazy because it was the first time that we allowed space for spontaneity. Like, I mean, literally to the day, it was like, okay, we don't have anything going on. And then that kind of popped up. And so it really kind of taught us we have the goals, we have places that we want to hit, we have our bucket list, but to also just remain open and, and kind of to speak like a true RVers, see where the wind takes you, you know? <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. So it's cool to kind of hear a little bit about that transition. And I want to come back to some of the things that you had to do or think about from like a process standpoint, because you've been running your company now since 2012. But I think I want to go back and talk about Headbands of Hope and when it first started, because it is such a cool thing that you guys have built. Let's get into kind of like the evolution of that business. So you were working from my understanding, you were working at Disney and how did it become a a thing for you to start this company? So I was working in Disney World as a photo pass photographer. And this was an internship in college. And one of the things that I got to do with my job was I got to photograph kids that were there on their wish through the Make-A-Wish Foundation. And I just fell in love with the organization and what it did for for these kids and the families. And so I got back to school my my sophomore year and I interned at Make-A-Wish. And that was when I was there, I was seeing kids that were losing their hair to chemotherapy and like the procedure would be like to give them a hat or a wig. And then I would see pictures of them on their wish or they would come into the offices and they'd be wearing these like headbands. And I just thought it was just the coolest gesture of confidence that they didn't really it wasn't really on their agenda to like cover up their head and their experience. They just wanted something to restore their self-confidence and feel good about themselves. And so headbands were the perfect way to do that. And so I started to look up if there were any like companies or organizations out there that were doing this, providing headbands to kids with cancer and realized that that was kind of a connection that hadn't been made yet. So the first thing I actually did was I ended up calling this hair, big hair accessory corporation, like their 1-800 line for like two weeks, seeing if they would give their unused inventory, like their leftover headbands to children's hospitals. And I could help them set up this program and stuff like that. And they finally called me back one day and they were just like, how many headbands do you want? And I think just because they wanted me to stop calling them. But <laughs> uh, so I ended up saying a thousand because that seemed like a huge number to me. And so they shipped me a thousand headbands to my dorm room and my roommates were like, what are you doing? And I ended up handing them out at hospitals and the kids loved them. And so did you actually like buy them? No, they, they left, they were leftovers. I didn't pay for them. And so now looking back, I'm impressed that they, they actually did that. I call that my proof of concept period because I realized that I couldn't keep calling this corporation, asking them to send me headbands. I had to figure out what I was going to do on my own. And you said Tom Shoes was your inspiration. It was similar for me. And this, he had, Blake, the founder, had spoken at my school a few months prior about this one-for-one concept that he came up with that he wants companies to replicate to create this socially good commerce, like not nonprofit, not really for-profit, even though they technically are, but something with a social mission ingrained in their business model. That was when I kind of got the idea for Headbands of Hope. For every headband sold, we donate one to a child with cancer. And I think that one of the reasons why Headbands of Hope is 
what it is today is because I started it in this like perfect do-over period of my life where I had, I was so young, I was like 19 or 20, where I had years to figure it out. I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have a family. I wasn't worried about leaving a job because I was in college. I had the support of my family, not just emotionally, but my dad was my first investor. And, and so I think that being in the position where I am now, where I talk about business and I write about it and, um, try to help people work towards their goals. I also know that everyone's goal is just relative to where they're at in their life. And I was in this great position where failure wasn't the end for me. Like I knew that even if headbands of hope didn't work, I had somewhere to sleep at night. I had, you know, a meal and not everyone is like that. And I think that I was able to kind of push through the lulls in the beginning because it was not fire right out of the gate because I had this safety net, if that makes sense. I love that. Yeah. And I remember explicitly, and one thing I've talked about a lot in this podcast, and I I think I've basically just kind of like most of my business ideas or philosophies just stole it from other people along the way who have like given it or read it in a book or mm-hmm. something like that. But I remember explicitly in my entrepreneurship class in college, there was a uh, local investor there in Austin who had done well. And I remember saying like, is it really relevant for me to finish college? I know what I want to do with my life. I want to run my own company. And he just kind of looked at me and was like, basically said it was a dumb idea and which is counterintuitive for a lot of you know people maybe out in california silicon valley that incentivize people to not go to school and all that but regardless what he said was if you give up now or if you if you quit school now to go all in on your business it's going to dramatically shorten your runway you know at this point if you mess up or screw up you're a sophomore junior in college you've got time right you've got a year or two years of like your maybe your parents helping you out or you having financial aid or you know you being in school (laughs) so that's your thing exactly exactly. and so essentially like not everyone is in a fortunate position like that they have runway so it's like when you're in a period of your life where you have runway and it could also that could also have been like you could say the same thing for a job like if you've got a 40-hour work week and you're working nights and weekends that's a great time to start a business because it's, if you if you screw up and fail, it's like your family's maybe not going to go hungry. And so I, I've carried that with me a lot over the years as I've thought about like starting a business and the power of having like as much runway as you can possibly have and how much of an underappreciated asset that is in business. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think it's acknowledging your privilege in that too is important because, you know, I just, I've just become a little like, I don't know if jaded is the right word, but just with hearing these like startup stories and founder stories of like, you know, where you don't really acknowledge where you came from. And I had this immense privilege of a runway family. And so I feel like first few years of business is the hardest. And I was able to push through those years because I had that kind of support system. And I wasn't like, oh my gosh, I need to put food on the table. But my dad he started his business when my sister and I were like in middle school. And I remember he came home one day and he was like, I am done with this job. I have this idea, you know, do you guys support me in in doing this? And we were all like, yeah. And I had (laughs) no idea what was going on. I was like, what's for dinner? And then he like converted our upstairs bathroom into his office and ran this company for 10 years. But for him, the stakes were high, like there was no plan B. And so I also think one of the privileges that I had too was seeing that firsthand. 
And so knowing that that was an option for me, I think that there are so many people that feel like, okay, I'm going to go to school and then either I'll go to grad school or I'll get a job. And this like option of starting your own thing doesn't really even feel like an option at all because they haven't seen it. So I was fortunate enough to be so close to it where my dad had zero business experience. I mean, he started a fitness technology company when I joke that he can't even answer an iPhone, you know, when I call him. But I think that like being able to see that was really, was really important for me to feel like that was an option for me. And so now I love speaking at a lot of like young girls organizations like Girl Scouts and girls on the run to just let them know that that's, that's always an option to do your own thing. You don't need to have an MBA. You don't need to have investors and all these like crazy terms that scare people out of it. You just need to, you know, create what you wish existed. That's a great message. Going back to Headbands of Hope and kind of like your early days, I saw on your website, your mom was your first person who bought one, which is awesome. <laughs> yeah. I like saw the dollar thing come through and was like, oh, I got an order. And then I was like, damn it, mom, like, just let me live my life for a second. But yeah, I'm grateful for her. Yeah. My dad also was the, my first investor as well, which is awesome. It sounds like it worked out better for your dad than mine. So I'm going to have to like cut him in on my next, my current company. Well, or <laughs> I, I can tell you the full story because it did not work out well, actually. Well, in the beginning. So I, my dad was kind of mentoring me throughout this process and you know, okay, how do I get a trademark and things like that? And then I was um, working with this factory in Kansas who I had found on the internet on some U.S. manufacturing website or something. And they were working with me to create the headbands. And we had been having all these calls and conversations and talking about the different types of headbands, things like that. And so I had never produced a product before. I had no idea what was going on. And I was also at this phase in my life where I felt like I was kind of playing dress up, you know, where I'm like, I'm not really qualified to be here. I'm just kind of putting on this. I hope that no one finds out that, you know, I'm have no idea what I'm doing. And now I realize like, <laughs> that's what everyone is doing. No one really knows what they're doing, but they were like, okay, this headband that we're going to make is really hard to source. So it's going to be this big upfront fee and then it'll go down and I was like, okay, you know, what is it? Thinking like I have, I have like $500 in my bank account thinking that'll cover it. And they were like, well, the first round of production is going to be $10,000. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And we had been like three months into conversations now. And so I was talking to my dad about it and I was doing some research. I was like, should I try to get a loan from the bank or should I try to get an investor and give away some equity? And he basically told me, you know, one of the mistakes I made with my business was I gave away too much equity too early. And I don't want you to have to be tied to a bank and pay interest. And I've seen your business plan. And I really think that this is going to be something. So I will be your first investor and I will loan you the $10,000 and you can pay me back when the business, you know, starts to make money. I mean, that was like hearing my dog speak English. I was like, are you kidding me? This is amazing. I was so excited that he believed in this idea enough to invest in it. And I ran to the bank. It was a Friday afternoon because I was like, I need them to get the money before the weekend. And I walked into Wells Fargo with my like printed out wiring instructions 
wired them $10,000 and I never heard from them again. It, it was like one of the lowest points. I mean, it was like this, I thought that this was like the nail in the coffin of I'm clearly not supposed to be doing this. I'm not qualified to be here. You know, like what, who did I think that I was? And I, I thought that that was, that was it for me. And I thought that maybe I'll just kind of sweep this under the rug and pretend like it didn't happen and start applying for jobs so I can pay my dad back. And we went to court and all this stuff. And we ended up just like spending more money in legal fees and, we just kind of had to cut our losses and, and move on. I just remember like it was a week or two that went by and thinking this isn't really about the embarrassment of failure for me. Like I feel like I could stomach being embarrassed, but I couldn't rest with the fact that like this business idea was sparked because I saw a problem and this business I hoped would solve that problem. And so I couldn't just throw in the towel because I felt like that problem wouldn't be solved. So I got this $300 grant from my school uh, that was giving it away to students starting businesses. And I bought two head headbands from some supplier in North Dakota that um, felt bad for me and let me buy like really low minimums. And I threw them up on my website, uh, April 25th, 2012. And now we have over 200 products on our website. We've donated half a million headbands and I never took outside money from anyone ever again, but it was not the hearts and butterflies of the investor experience that you would have wanted. <laughs> yeah. And last year you guys sold and gave away 185,000 headbands. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. We've hit every um, children's hospital in the United States in 15 countries now. Wow. And so now at this point, I'm assuming you have pretty good relationships with a lot of these hospitals. Like you've got like a process for how these headbands are getting shipped out. And like, mm -hmm. was that a hard thing to do is like figure out how to set up that infrastructure? Yeah. And it was like one of those things where we were just like flying by the seat of our pants. And what we originally did in the beginning that was super helpful was uh, we worked with like the St. Baldrick's Foundation, which is a really amazing childhood cancer research nonprofit. And they really helped us with their connections to different hospitals, get into these different hospitals across the country. And then once word of mouth started coming around, we would get requests from hospitals and um, individuals to get headbands sent there. And now we actually have these DIY headbands where the kids can actually color in their headbands and like make them their own. And we're doing that with Sharpie. And we're actually, since this is fit for this podcast, we're doing one with Airstream where it's like a map of the United States where you can color in like where you've been in your RV. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. One thing that I have found really, really useful uh, in situations kind of like where you're trying to make a bunch of relationships is like, with uh, my software company right now, we built a relationship with the whole Canadian Campground Association, and they have so many of these relationships already across the country. And like, there's been a lot, several other projects where it's like have, finding that one like nonprofit like oh, you yeah. guys have done who are tapped in across the country. That's such an underutilized process for so many people. How long would it take to like 
get the right person at the hospital on LinkedIn or on their website, reach out to them, explain yourself. You're coming in with like a trusted partner and having that is so huge. Totally. And I think that with our model giving headbands, there was big learning curve with that. But I also think that there are easier ways to do it for like social companies um, to almost outsource the the social aspect of the company. So you could have people work like focus on the business and sales. Cause at the end of the day, one of the things about social enterprise is you still have to make sales. You still have to operate like a business in order for you to give back. And one example that I really love is my friend, Joe, he started this company called listen headphones. And for every pair of headphones you buy, it donates a pair of hearing aids to someone in need. But how it works is it actually, they have a nonprofit partner, the Starkey Hearing Foundation, where, you know, a pair of headphones is donated and then they basically fund enough through the Starkey Hearing Foundation where Starkey will go and place those, those hearing aids with someone. And so Listen Headphones can really just focus on spreading their brand and um, making sales and partnerships, whereas they have their nonprofit partner that executes on the social promise. And so I feel like there's really unique ways to be able to partner with people so you can kind of both do what you're good at. Totally. Going back to some of your earlier days, one of the things I remember I struggled with when I was starting my t-shirt company was like getting past that initial circle of like family and friends and breaking into like the bigger, you know, pool of people who don't know you. And like, right. I feel like that's probably a pain point for a lot of people who are starting a B2C type of business, especially in retail or something like that. So what were like the marketing channels or things that worked well for, I know you guys have had a ton of PR, a really good press. I saw you've been on The View and a lot of other morning shows and, and media outlets and things like that. So like, was that the, was that the path? Were there other ones? Like wh what were some of the ways that you started getting sales from outside of like the family and friend circle, if that makes sense? Yeah, no, that's a really good question because I feel like that is such a turning point in your company where you feel like someone is using their dollars because they believe in my business and not just because they know me. And that's like a, a big moment for an entrepreneur that I think should really be celebrated when that happens for you. So a lot of times people think that our kind of uptick was being on the Today Show or some of these press wins. And I'll be completely honest, those have been spikes, but they weren't game changers for us. A lot of times we can associate those kind of shiny things as, oh, that's just going to put us in another universe where we're like orbiting with all these other companies. And it really doesn't like it's just kind of this hit. And then maybe you have a little bit more credibility than you did before. But it's not something that's worth like spending all of your time doing. And one of the things that I remember the moment where I got my first order from someone I didn't know, this was around 2012 where logging was super popular and I was reading fitness magazine and they had this article that was like five fitness bloggers to watch and, and they had their websites and everything. And so I went on each one's website and I emailed them and I told them about what I'm doing. And I said, I would love to send you a headband and see what you think. And then if you like it, you can share it with your followers. And out of those like five emails, two of them got back to me. And then one of them ended up actually posting on her blog. And that was the day that I got like, $500 worth of orders from people that I didn't know when this micro fitness blog posted about me. And that was like the moment I was like, okay, this is working. And it gave me that confidence that people out there believe in this. 
But it also taught me a lot of the wins that you get in business is not as much about precise strategy as it is about just throwing darts. And like, that's not what you hear a lot. A lot of times it's like, okay, what's the marketing plan? Like, what is exactly what we're going to do? And I would argue that a lot of our wins didn't come from this like carefully crafted, well thought out pitch. It was like, we're going to try to talk to 50 influencers and maybe 5% of them will go forward, you know, and that was just the reality of sometimes quantity over quality, even though that's not usually what you hear. Yeah. I'm listening to some of the opportunities that you've done. Like you interned at the Today Show, you worked at Disney, you got this grant from your school. Like these aren't things that people just like walk up and hand you. Would you, it seems like you've kind of built the skill of just like reaching out for things that you want and asking for them. Oh my gosh. Yes. (laughs) You're like, yes, I'm great at that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I reached out to you to be on this podcast. Yeah, totally. This was... (laughs) (laughs) I don't like to brag, but I think one of the things that I truly am good at is taking my ego out of it and shooting my shot when I have the opportunity. And I honestly think that that came from that like huge mistake in the beginning of $10,000 where I was like, I had to really dig my heels in and recommit to this because if I can get through this, then I can really, I can handle anything. I really try not to associate my pride and ego into, into things. And I think that it will never happen for you if you don't put yourself out there. And one of the things I like to tell people is that the aftermath of a no isn't life ruining, but the aftermath of a yes could be life changing. And so it's like, when you look at those two possibilities, you're not going to die because someone told you no but you could have this huge opportunity if someone tells you yes. Your odds are Hunger Games, like in your favor. <laughs> and uh, Peter. so, you, yeah, exactly. So you might as well just go for it and just try to live by like failure will always feel better than regret. Mm. This is good stuff. We didn't know each other before this, but I'm su- I'm assuming we're probably gonna be friends after this conversation. I would hope so. But I'm I'm super excited, genuinely, to go and read your book. I know that you came out with your your first book. Is that right? Yeah. This past year, Chase the Bright Side. And I'm just, I'm expecting that it's going to have some of this mentality that you have kind of grown and accrued in your business and sounds like it's been imparted on from your family and, you know, some of these lessons. So I think that that's going to be amazing. Well, thank you for mentioning it. And it's funny. I was like, I always loved writing. (laughs) My like claim to fame was when I was in sixth grade, I was in chicken soup for the soul. And that was clearly when I peaked and (laughs) it's been downhill from there, but I feel like that should be like a Twitter bio. Right. Yeah. Like it was sixth grade chicken soup for the soul. But I always wondered like how writing would come back into my life. And when I started headbands of hope and kind of had this whole roller coaster start, I realized that this thread consistent within my story is just being able to push through some of the tough times and being able to figure it out because I believe in something better. And that's what really optimism is all about. A lot of times we think of optimism as just kind of bliss and being happy all the time, but really it's about a strategy for the future and being able to, again, just take your ego out of it and do some great work for something that you feel is bigger than you. And so that's really what Chasing the Bright Side is about is, yes, there's a story of headbands of hope and some other things that have happened in my life, but how can we all 
think a little bit more optimistically so we can create the future that we want to live in. Do you ever find yourself like, has there been any moments over the past eight years where you've found yourself in like a negative? And the reason I ask is, you know, like being fully transparent, the past like three years I've been in the software company and there's been like, I've felt the trough of sorrow. Like there's been different things that I've done over the years that have been connected to like a bigger purpose outside of me. And I would consider myself a pretty big optimist. But Mm -hmm. I think at any time, like entrepreneurs get into phases where it's like, man, this is actually just really, really hard in this moment. It's not to say that it won't be worth it in the future. But like, have you found yourself in like, has that happened to you over the past like decade of doing your own thing? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yesterday, like it (laughs) happens all the time. And um, and and I think that anyone who says that that doesn't happen (laughs) is lying. But um one of the things that I actually talk about in the book that I think is maybe contrary to what you might hear about resilience is giving yourself permission to quit. When we think about quitting, there's like a poster that says, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead or like quitting is for losers, you know, with a lion on it or something. But usually that's what we hear. But then when we actually can tell ourselves and remind ourselves, I can, no one's forcing me to be here. I can throw in the towel if this isn't suiting my life anymore, if this isn't fitting me. And by giving yourself that option, it doesn't show weakness. It reminds you the power of choice because no one wants to do something that they're forced to do. And so if you're approaching your job or your work as a means that you're forced to do it, it's going to feel like crap. But if you are choosing to be there, if you remind yourself that you don't have to, and you're choosing to stay, it kind of recommits you to that anchor point of why you started. And so I've had those moments where some a contract falls through or even like a bad hire, you know, in the company where I have to let someone go and really tough moments where you're like, and you see sometimes your friends over there with health insurance and they have like (laughs) LaCroix, you know, in their offices and you're like, damn, that would be nice. But then once you give yourself that option of I could throw in the towel and you almost fall in love again of like, no, I want to stay. I think that that's sometimes one of the best things we can do when we're in that moment is like remind ourselves that we can walk. Yeah. I love that. That's good stuff. I wasn't even thinking of a question to ask. I was just paying attention to what you're saying. So the the last question (laughs) that I have for you, because I ask this every episode, so I don't have to come up with it on the spot is what's the biggest thing that you have learned in the past year as you've now taken your life and Ollie's life and Jake's life on the road and you're living in Airstream, seeing cool places, running headbands of hope, speaking, writing books, probably doing other interesting hobbies. What's the biggest thing that you feel like you have learned? Actually, the lesson that I've learned, like the biggest thing is something that stretches across the trip and into my life. And it's this, it's this idea of ending destinational living. Because when sometimes when you're in an RV, you're like, oh, you know, I might be in El Paso right now, but like, I can't wait to get to San Diego or like wherever we're going. And so you're parked somewhere, but really your mind is at that next destination. And I found that on the road that was always happening where I'd be somewhere, but I would be thinking about what was next. And I find that in my business, that's what happens. I achieve something or we get on QVC or we do this big thing, but I'm like, what is the next thing that we're doing? 
And although like being a forward thinker can mean that you move at like a quicker pace, it also means that you're kind of robbed of the joys of the present, which is the whole reason why we're, why we're doing this. And so I think like one of the biggest lessons and something that I've been trying to learn and like be more aware of is that our fulfillment that we're seeking is not this end destination that will hit one day. It's a choice to how we live our life every day. And that can be in El Paso parked at a Cracker Barrel, or that can be in like the beautiful mountains of Glacier National Park. It's, it's about what we make it. And so that's been my biggest lesson is trying not to think about what's next in the next destination, but enjoying what's in front of me right now. Bam. What a great mic drop to end this podcast episode. <laughs> I love it so much. Thank you. I've loved talking to you. Yeah, it's been great. Jess, where's a great place for people to connect with you online if they want to follow yours or Headbands of Hope's journey? Yes, you can go to chasingthebrightside.com and you can find me and the book on there. And then you can find us on Instagram at Headbands of Hope. And then my handle is at Jess underscore Ekstrom, E-K-S-T-R-O-M. And I would love to hear from you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jess. Thank you. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode with Jess. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, and if you've never left a review for the RV Entrepreneur Podcast, we're currently somewhere north of 400, which is amazing. And I look at them frequently, probably too often, and I've read all of them and I appreciate all of you who have left one to date. They seriously mean the world to me. So so if you got value from today's episode, that would mean the world to me if you left a review of there or better yet, go buy a headband from Headbands of Hope because that is a much more important mission than feeding my ego by leaving a review in iTunes. Either way, I love you guys and thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I'll see you guys next time.